All right, so we have, uh, last week we started talking about uh, the big story uh, of, of what's taking place, taking a step back from ourselves, uh, which that's, January is kind of a good time to do that since uh, December uh, and, and the holiday season kind of, uh, as much as we try not to, it does start to turn our attention a little bit inwards. Um, so we take a step back and look at the big story of what Christ has done, of, of something outside of myself, something bigger than myself. And last week we went back to Genesis talking about uh, the creation story, Adam and Eve, and we talked about how that uh, God created man with two things in mind. He created to have a relationship and then he created man with a purpose. One of the first things that he tells man after he's created is that you have a job to do, take care of the garden. And so he has a purpose and he has a relationship. And when we get outside of those two things, when we get outside of having a relationship with God, when we get outside of having a purpose uh, in God, we begin to lose the creative order. As much as uh, and, and we mentioned it briefly, as much as gender identity and all these things that society is, well, not society, that everyone is, is having to come to terms with, and how do we approach all of these different things, as much as that is getting outside of God's creative order, when I don't have relationship, communion with God, and when I don't have a purpose in God, then I'm getting outside of creative order. And I was, uh, I'll, I'll probably talk about this at some point, some other time, but when we speak about purpose, um, that, that, that sometimes gets to be one of those words that kind of just becomes more theoretical. Because we all know that we have, I mean, there's plenty of scripture that tells us that we have a purpose. There's plenty of scripture that tells us that God has a purpose for us. And we can all get behind the idea that God has a purpose for me. But you know, a lot of times it's where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> is where we really live. And I heard it phrased, it was talking about something else, I can't even remember what it's talking about or where, I, anyway, this week. But it just turned that phrase for me a little bit into let's put it closer to home. I know that I have a purpose, I know God has a purpose for me, I know we're all joined together, lively stones, I know that every part of the body is important. But let me just phrase it to you this way. Do you feel useful in the kingdom of God? Oh, now that changes a little bit. Do I feel useful? Because I'm probably not real caught up on my purpose if I don't feel useful. So anyway, like I said, I'll probably investigate that a little bit more. At some point, we'll take that journey of whether we're useful, useless, or just feel used. How about that? Ooh, there we go. There's a three-part series right there. So anyway, that, we have that purpose. And so this week, we're, we're building just a little bit further on that, looking at the big picture of what God uh, has in store for us and what God is trying to do and challenge in our lives. And uh, this week we will have a focus of Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 14 and I'm going to read that. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 14 it says, therefore, just, and this ties in with the message we actually heard last week, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus spread to all men, because all sinned. For unto the law sin was in the world, for until the law, the sin, oh man, I think I went cross-eyed. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so we have this idea that we, we realize that sin entered the world, and because it entered in the way that it did, it has, if you want to say, infected mankind ever since. But we know that there was another coming who would change the course of history and change the course of sin uh, for all eternity. A gentle breeze tickled at their skin, skin now crudely shielded with thatched together fig leaves. Blood had crusted around a jagged rip on the side of his finger. She had recoiled when she saw it, a strange crimson indigo color that they had not yet seen. 
Just one of so many things that now were thrust before them in an ugly parade of horrors. What a different parade, only a heartbeat ago. With contagious joy, the pure and holy one had marched before Adam a visual symphony of animals with sounds and colors that now all but taunted his twisted thoughts. The memory of how perfect everything had been before the choice. And really, I like that turn of phrase better than the fall, because it was a choice. (laughs) And when I say the fall, that's just something that happened a long time ago that I don't really associate to, but the choice, I've got a few of those in my life where I can look back and uh, that was the choice. But the, 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 all of that before the choice, how perfect it had been, it made the agony of deception more acute. That serpent, how he had twisted words, made Eve doubt the master's instructions. She replayed it all again. What had God said? Why had she even given pause at the sight of the fruit? She shuddered as she thought of how many lush fruit trees she had walked around to get to the cursed one. Too late to redo or reason away the ugliness of the choice. There was only now to cope with the agony. But how to cope when every breath was suffocated with despair, hiding frantically, trying to stop the nightmare. No direction, no hope, no plan. And then his voice, where are you? Mixed with the overwhelming fear and the shame was a new feeling something they had never had a need to give voice to. There was shame, there was guilt, there was fear, all of these, but this new, emo- this new thing they felt that they never had to feel before was hope. His voice and the possibility that maybe he could still care, it was too much to believe, yet they dared to hope. And after failed excuses, with a rush of breath, the first man, Adam, confessed. Practice speeches were gone. What could you do in the face of the pure and holy one but let the truth tumble out? And in that moment of vulnerable reconnection with him, the path to restoration began. The big story began with God's plan for a perfect relationship with the people he made. And we talked about this last week, but it began with that perfect relationship. The drama unfolded as on a flawless stage. In this grand garden. Even popular culture seems fascinated by the Garden of Eden, even today. People still attempt to try and emulate it with perfect societies that seek perfect harmony. However, it wasn't just that there was unity, it wasn't just that there was harmony. What made the garden unique and standing alone and impossible to emulate was not just the fruit, not just the lusciousness of, of, of all that was there, but it was the absence of sin and the, and the, the, un, uh, uh, the, the thing that we have never been able to achieve since of that completely unadulterated, unfettered, intimate communion with God. It's impossible to achieve those same results. But God created humanity with love and the intent for relationship. And that's in your books, relationship. God created us with love and the intent for relationship. And this detail of the story, the overall story, is crucial. And it makes the sad turn in this drama that much more heart-wrenching. Because God created them for relationship, and that is what is destroyed, first of all. God's original plan was for unity in the garden. God's infinite love cannot be emphasized enough. It is the context for understanding this big story we're talking about. You can't talk about that story unless you talk about God's love. The depth of his love, it shatters our human expectations and limits that we place on love. God loves past what I can understand. God loves people that I can't understand why he still loves them, and then I look in the mirror and can't figure out why he still loves me. He loves with no strings attached. 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. And to grasp the fact of how deeply God loves us, that he doesn't love us out of obligation because he has to love us. He doesn't love us with conditions, but he genuinely loves you and I. 
Now, we understand that salvation has conditions, that God is not willing that any should perish, and yet we understand that there are conditions to be saved. You're not just automatically saved. Yet that is not the same thing that is attached to his love, that his love is unconditional. Think about that. No matter what I do, he will still love me just as much. Now, my salvation, I understand that that's something else, but he, he, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, that's when he demonstrated the greatest act of love, that you cannot do enough wrong in your life for him to quit loving you. That is the depth of his love. That's an amazing thing. So when I begin to think about that, how does his love affect my attitude and actions? How does it change when I accept and acknowledge that I'm loved. That's something very important there. Accepting love. You know, we can, we can spend a lot of time with people trying to gain their love. We can try and gain their appreciation. Of course, when you meet somebody and a friendship starts, there is that thing that takes place where you are trying to accept one another, where there is this idea of trying to, maybe it's not conscious, but you're trying to earn their respect. You're trying to earn their love. And there's a difference in a relationship where you just know that you are loved. Hopefully your marriage would be at this place where you get to the point where you're not constantly having to try and prove love to each other, but there comes on some level an acceptance of, that you love each other. That doesn't mean that you quit demonstrating love, okay? But there should come a point where you accept, and that's difficult for some people to accept that somebody loves them. And we can get all down into rejection in your life and things that you have felt and self-worth and self-confidence and all of those issues. But sometimes the hardest thing to do is for me just to accept that God loves me, that I do not have to prove, that I do not have to gain. No, he just loves me unconditionally. Before Adam uttered one word or did one thing that could have endeared him to the Lord, God infinitely loved him. The minute that life began to course through his body, the minute that breath or the second that breath came out of his lungs, God loved him unconditionally. Just like when a child is born and that child is placed in your arms for the first time, there is a love there that is not, uh, it, it's, it, it, that child has done nothing for you. Nothing. In fact, they're getting ready to rip everything away from you. <laughs> They're going to rip your time, your sleep, your money. They're getting ready to rip it all. Your sanity, it's out the window. And yet, you love them unconditionally in that moment. And they have done absolutely nothing for you. That's exactly how God loves you. You have done nothing to deserve His love. In fact, you will co probably cause Him a lot of grief. He'll probably ask you to do stuff. And just like your kids, He'll say, I don't want, you'll say, I don't want to. <laughs> And you know what? He'll still love you. That's an amazing thing. Life before sin was perfect peace and joy because of pure communion with God. Now that, that sounds pretty nice. Perfect peace and joy. That's something that I would strive for because of pure communion with God. That lets me know that I can't find true peace and joy outside of communion with God. But Adam and Eve lived with a purpose, caring for the garden, enjoying intimate fellowship with God. Think about this. They didn't need to schedule prayer. They didn't have to schedule an appointment for prayer or anything because life in the garden included full and perfect communion between God and his people. It was an enjoyable relationship. They did not have to force themselves to say, I need to pray today. It was just a part of life and life was perfect. However, from that place of provision and communion, we find that Adam and Eve choose not the easy provided path, but a difficult one, one of obstinate disobedience, and we know that changed everything. So while we find God's first words to humans were words of provision, words of communion, words of purpose, it's interesting to see that man's first recorded words to God were words of confession. And it's still the same today. Every journey to God still starts with confession. That's why repentance is necessary. Man's first words spoke 
recorded in scripture were in confession to God. And my story cannot start either until I confess to God. And God presents his people in the garden with the choice to love him. That's another blank in your book. God presents his people with the choice to love him. Now that's not really that profound. We know that we have free will. We know that God could have made us just to serve him. That we automatically have an impulse to praise him just like the angels. Just like the angels that sit around his throne and cry holy, holy, holy. Continually God could have made us to do that. So that he could have made us anyway. The minute that we walk through the doors of a church that we just start lifting our hands. Wouldn't that be great? Or wouldn't that be kind of funny too? Is as soon as you walk through the doors, whoop, your hands go up. Of course, it'd just become normal. <laughs> we wouldn't know that it was funny because <laughs> that's just what we do. Anyway, but <laughs> make sure you wear deodorant. <laughs> I guess he could have made us so that we didn't need deodorant. That would have been good. Well, anyway, let's get back on course here. Where are we at? Here was deodorant. Where's the slide for that? So God gave us the choice, and he gave us that ability to reason, the ability to freely choose, and that choice is constantly present as we continue to walk with God. We have the choice to serve him, and then we know after we make that choice to serve him, we are still constantly presented with choices in our life. Now, a lot of times I'm like, man, it's, I just wish, ever wish that it would just be decided? You ever get tired of choices? Ever get tired of trying to make decisions? And you just get fed up because there's so many endless... Now, my personality is that way that I like to uh, have 50, explore all 5,900 billion options first. And that, after a while, man, you can just wear yourself out. It'd be easier if someone would just say, here's what I want you to do. But God has presented us with that ability, and so we constantly have those choices. And understand that the power of choice could only exist if there was the option to choose something other than God. If there was the option to choose something other than God. It's another blank. So God has allowed that option there. In the same command in which God gave Adam dominion over the entire garden, God also commanded him not to eat of a single tree. He said, you can eat of any except that one tree. So he gave Adam the ability to choose, and he presented two choices to him. Now understand that God never explained why Adam and Eve could not eat of the tree. He only said, here's the consequence. And so as we watch this unfold as we look at it, wondering if something hasn't been left out, as God just gives this blanket statement. Surely God had a reason. And surely if God would have just shared the reason with Adam and Eve, then they wouldn't have done what they did. They could have made an informed decision. That's the kind of decisions I like to make. I like to make an informed decision. Here's the reason why I'm doing it. Yet God chose only to make a request of his people. <laughs> that sounds like life now still. Sometimes God makes requests and doesn't explain why. Sometimes God tells us to do something and doesn't explain why. And here's where the problem comes. Here's why we struggle with that. Because man was created to have what with God? relationship, communion with God. So that's what it's based on. It's based on relationship and on communion with God. And so a request is given, and now all of a sudden, and we'll get into this in just a minute, Satan begins to attack the request. He begins to, and Adam and Eve begin to question the request. And suddenly they don't trust the request anymore because they don't know why. They don't have enough information about it. But we understand, and in the same way in our life today, we put the emphasis on the request and not on the relationship with the requester, if that makes sense. You see, because when I don't know who's asking me what to do, I have trouble trusting the request. You know, if my wife asked me to do something, <laughs> I'll put on a good show. No. I'm more likely to trust her 
than someone that can ask me the exactly the same thing that just walks up off the street and asks me to do something. I'm going to want to know why from that person more than I do from her. Now, I may do it and then ask why later, because that, that's the smart way to do it in marriage. Ask why after you've done it, right? <laughs> but there's a difference, and what is the difference? Relationship. It becomes easier to do the things that God asked me to do that I don't understand and I don't have all the reasons for when I have the correct creative order, relationship with God. Because now I put my trust in God and not in the lack of information or in the request. And so we see all this happening. We see that they make this choice. They've suddenly thrown away the relationship. They, they, they've put their trust in what they don't know to, to, to change the, the dynamics of their relationship with God. And then we find another thing as well. And here it is. What we value determines our choices. What we value determines our choices. That's another blank in your books. And this, this is a, a whole big thing. What we value determines our choices. When we say, and I've already talked about this a little bit in Sunday school in, in the end of last year, but we can say we love something, but our actions really tell the picture. We started out by looking at John 3.16. For God so loved the world... Because he said it. Well, he does say it, but that verse tells us God so loved the world, and here's how you can prove that God loves the world. He sent his only begotten son. There was an action, and that action demonstrated how much he loved. And so if I'm ever in doubt because I don't hear his voice and I'm not feeling anything, I can go back to the fact that he loved me so much that he performed an action he gave. And so a lot of, we can have a lot of noble intentions. How many of you, this is the time of year for good intentions, right? <laughs> it's the thought that counts, right? We hold on to that. We hold on to that. At least I do a lot of times. But we can have noble intentions. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But then, when, then we're faced with choices. Choices. And we have a choice of whether to follow those intentions or whether we follow what we really value, what we really want. And it's in those choices that's just exactly what Adam and Eve had. They had a choice between intentions of following what God wanted and their own desires. And what demonstrates to us, it was their actions demonstrate what was really going on inside. And so it doesn't matter how much I say because my values will always trump my intentions and beliefs unless I'm willing to make some changes to my values. Our values determine our choice. And, and, and this is a, a, a very uh, deep subject because the things, uh, our, our values come from a variety of sources. You've got values that you've received from church. You've got values that you received from your parents. And sometimes those you think, well, my parents were, you know, whatever they were. All right? it, a lot of times our values can be shaped in the opposing manner from what our parents were. But you value something because, uh, or, or not doing something because of how you were raised. And so we have all these things. We, we have things that society and culture give us as values. We, we know that uh, society, uh, well, uh, it could be loyalty, and that affects all kind of decisions in your life. That loyalty trumps certain things. That being uh, 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 conscientious of, of certain things. All of these values play in. And when, our, when we come to choices where our values come in, in contrast with something, our values will win. The things that we hold near. And this is why change is daunting because when we talk about real change, it talks about going not just to what we say we believe, but to our actual values deep down. And that's why I've discovered that when we talk about change and when I talk about I want to be a different person, I don't need more insight into what to change because I probably know what I need to change in my life. It would probably be very easy for every single person in this place, if you were honest, to write down three things that need to change in your life. Here's what I really need. I need the courage to change. Because the reason I haven't changed them is not because of intentions. It's probably because I don't want to. 
I don't know. Uh, I think that part of a good relationship is honesty. <laughs> and how many, how many times have you actually been honest with God? Where it really counts. I mean, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I've honestly told God, nope, don't want to do that. Now, it's one thing to not want to do it or to come to an altar and say, I'll do it, then walk away and not do it. But to actually say, I don't want to do that. And, and the simple reason is, it would require too much change, and I don't want to change that. All right, anyway, that's too heavy for all the people that are sitting in their home snowed in. They need to hear this, right? But values are stronger than intentions. And in Eve's case... Perhaps she had walked through the garden that day. And I would venture to say that when she woke up that morning, she did not start out with an intention of disobeying God. She probably didn't wake up and say, today's the day when all of this is gone. This is it. I've decided today's the day. I'm sick of Adam. I'm sick of the cool of the day stuff. I'm going to eat the fruit today. Perhaps she never even questioned God's command before. Thoughts probably never even crossed her mind. But for some reason, she found herself that day near the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she paused to listen to the serpent. And the story takes a devastating turn as Eve, one of the main characters, she succumbs to something that we all now know is common, and that is sin. Why wasn't life in the garden and perfect communion enough? Did Eve not value her relationship with God enough to protect it? Did Adam not value his relationship enough to protect it? But we do find that whatever the theories, that they both ate of the fruit, and because of that, instantly sin begins to enter the world, and with it, the things that always... uh, 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 Just completely forgot the word in my mind. (laughs) Like it's gone. Accompany. See, it's a real big word. Sin comes in and the things that always accompany sin are bondage, shame, guilt, and anguish. You can't have sin without those. It's important for us to understand that we must reject sin and its bondage because sin never comes without bondage and look to God for freedom. We always have to look to God for freedom. The lessons that cost us the most are the lessons usually most remembered. The times when you really had to change, the times when it really hurt, are the times that you remember. And I'm sure Adam and Eve would be no different. If they could speak to us today, if they could uh, turn aside to us today, I'm sure they would tell us to avoid sin at all costs, to don't question certain things, to follow what God says because what He says is true and what He says is real. But we see that man still does what Adam and Eve did, still does the same thing today. And that we don't take seriously some sin. We don't, I mean, society as a whole doesn't take seriously sin. But we see it enacted out, our disobedience and sin, on a daily basis. And the consequences that cause separation. But hope is still present. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) And with God's help, we can recognize, because Satan is not a creator, Satan still does the same thing that he did all the way back then. And so we're going to take a look at how Satan tempted Eve and see what it means for you and I today, because he still comes against us in the same way. First of all, the serpent positioned himself near the object of temptation. Again, it's not clear why Eve was wandering over by that tree. We're not sure why she had walked over there that day. And, and, but we could argue that if she had stayed away from that tree, then perhaps it would have been a safeguard against the temptation that uh, happened to her. And in our present-day lives, we need the same thing. We need boundaries. We need boundaries. God's Word warns us of things that can do danger to our soul. Now, they may not be in and of themselves absolutely sinful, but there are things that can do danger to our souls, and we need boundaries. Out of respect for what pleases God, and out of care to preserve our relationship with Him, We should build guardrails that protect us from these temptations. We need to build guardrails that protect us from these temptations. Now, I understand about this because, um, well, let's just take, for instance, um, this walk around right here. 
I don't know if you were a part of any conversations. There were questions and different things about this walk around up here, about high, how high it should be. How high should that wall be? Because it wasn't your kid, but it was everyone else's kid <laughs> that was going to jump over, right? So there was, there, was a, there was whether the wall should be a foot lower. It's actually state requirement height right now, which I think is, I don't know if it's whatever it is. You can measure it later. Should we put nets up there? Should we just build the wall all the way up? Should we put glass all the way around? Should we make it another foot higher? What should we do? And, and, and it's state regulation. Now, if you were to build a wall all the way up, you would do what? You would take away the choice of that nutcase child that wants to climb up there. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but you would take away that kid's free will to jump off of that, right? So if God put a barrier in front of you so that you could not even be tempted, he takes away your free will. Now, that would be nice in some things, right? That you don't have to be tempted in some things, but that would take away your free will, okay? So there's a barrier that's built there. Now, that barrier really, really, just, just like the lock on your house, you know, you turn a little thing and leave the house, you're like, oh, the house is safe. With that, all that glass in the front door and that, yeah. They, you, can, you can climb up on there, right? Kevin could climb up on there. Get, Ryland could get down. Kevin could stand on his back and stand on top of there and jump off if he wanted to, okay? But at some point, what that barrier does, even though if you really wanted to, you could get over that barrier, it presents you with a choice. A choice. You have a choice. Am I going to be an idiot? <laughs> Okay, you, you go some places where, you know, there's, there's stories of people going to cliffs and falling off cliffs and all this stuff. And even when there's a barrier there, now you cannot enjoy the cliff or the view or Grand Canyon or whatever it is, if they put a 20 foot wall in front of it so that nobody could fall. Nobody would fall if there's a 20 foot concrete wall there. We need to build that wall. No, <laughs> I, I just, I, I would share it with all of you. I should have just put it on the screen. It's just really funny. Uh, there's a, man, <laughs> I don't need to get off on this, but I just have to. There's a, a clip of, of President Trump when he was not president. It was at a commencement speech or something, and he's talking to college students or whatever. And he's, he, says, he says, if there's a wall in front of you, don't give up. You need to get around that wall. You need to go through. It's just, it's funny anyway. Maybe you don't find it funny. He's telling them to get around the wall however possible. Anyway, <laughs> if there was a 20-foot wall, then that would take away all necessity for anything, but then nobody would enjoy the view of free choice. Okay, so that the guardrail does not... Well, well, does that really matter if I don't do this? That thing that you've put in place, is that really that important? Well, maybe not, but it does present you with a choice. That if you step over this guardrail, if you step over this boundary that has been put in place, you are now in danger. And if something happens to you, it's your fault. Well, if I do this, will it really make me sin? Maybe not. You may be able to walk all the way to the edge of the cliff, hang off it, do some pull-ups, get back up, and you're fine. But on the other hand, you may slip and you may fall. What that barrier does, what that boundary does, is presents you with a choice. You have to make a conscious choice to say, I am stepping over this. And that's where a little bit of danger comes in. Because you are knowingly stepping over some things that you know have been put in place. So there are things that a church may put in place. There are things that scripture says to put in place. In fact, we can tie this to Hebrews chapter 12 where he says to lay aside every weight to lay aside every weight. Now, those weights, those things are guardrails is really what we're talking about. To lay those things aside, are they going to stop you from running the race? No, but they're going to wear you out running the race. And let me just say, there, tie, tie this up with what I said at the very start. There are a lot of Christians that are tired and feeling useless, and their walk with God is not life more abundant, just to put it plain and simple. And sometimes some of the reason is because we have stepped past boundaries, we have ignored boundaries, and we've said, you know what, it doesn't matter. But we're presented with that choice. 
We're constantly presented with that choice. And so, and, and it's when we come near that temptation, that's where Satan positions himself. He doesn't position himself on this side of the guardrail. But when he says some, when he sees someone step over and say, you know what, it's fine. I can, I can do this and it's not going to affect my salvation. But it's in those moments that we unintentionally find ourselves standing next to the tree of knowledge and good and evil that the serpent is there waiting for us. Next, the serpent begins his conversation with Eve by attempting to undermine what God said. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So when Eve countered with the parameters for the tree, the serpent lies to her and mischaracterizes God. And it's all a subversive attempt to undermine what Eve knew about God's word and his very nature. Really, when we look at it, it's confusing. It, it kind of uh, uh, stumps us how Eve could have believed the serpent lie. Why would she believe a serpent that's speaking to her more than God? Yet how many times have I let society, have I let media, have I let people of influence in, in my own life dull or manipulate my interpretation of Scripture? Never mind anyone else. You know who the best rationalizer of things in your life is? You. I can rationalize anything away. <laughs> we, can, we can rationalize all kinds of stuff and say, well, I'm doing it for this reason or because of this. And we know we're not. We know we're manipulating truth. But we live in a world where tolerance is championed and it's, it's at the expense of integrity and principles. And to withstand that, we have to know God's word if we are to remain faithful. We have to know God's word. And let me just say this, since this is the adult class and all the kitty winkles are out of here, this is not anything bad. I'm just saying, you know what? Some of this stuff about identity and tolerance and all of these things, it may not be an issue in your life. But let me tell you what, the rest of the people that aren't in this room, it is definitely an issue in their life because it's not something that they can choose to see. They, weren't, they, they didn't have a choice about being raised a certain way. They are being taught things in school. Their friends believe it. They hear it every day through media and social media. And it's just a way of life. It is unbelievable when you look at the statistics of how many Christian people under the age of 30 believe that all these gender issues that we're having are fine. They don't condone them and they don't participate in them, but they think they're fine. That, that responsibility to make sure they know the word of God, yes, they have a personal responsibility, but we need to make sure that we are instilling things and making sure that we reinforce those boundaries in their lives. And so while you think, well, that's not for me. No, it is for you because if you're settled in it, then you should help someone else become settled in it. That's the way it works. But we have this constant pounding of media and our society of redefining love and identity. And, and, and scripture is the only thing that holds the key to not being deceived because there's a lot of these things that when I take man's arguments, they seem to fit all right. But it comes in stark contrast with Scripture. And I've got to tell people, I've got to make sure that people understand that Scripture is, 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 takes precedent over what I feel. Takes precedent. I need to hurry up. I have some scratch, chicken scratch notes there. That is Satan tempting me away from... No. But we need to make sure that we, have to, that we remain faithful to the Word of God. That we remain faithful. And, and it's, it's not enough. Okay? I know it should be, but it's not. Okay? I know it should be enough for, for someone that is, has walked with the Lord for years just to tell a younger person, that's wrong, don't do it. But there's a lot of arguments and there's a lot of, uh, of, of other things besides just it's right and wrong that are being presented to them. I guess what I'm saying is you need to know in the word why it's wrong. It's not enough just to say it's wrong. Because you know what media is doing? It's just saying that's always the answer. But they don't ever tell you why. And they are giving reasons of why on their side. And that is important. 
that change starts changing your mindset. If there's a why and it's some, somewhat believable, you'll believe that more than I told you so or don't do that. So it's important for you and I not just to pound, you don't do it, that's not right. We need to explain why. And so I have to know why. I have to know why from Scripture. Anyway, we, we got to move on. The serpent's next move. So he, he undermined what God said because Eve wasn't confident of what the word of God said. The, next, the serpent's next move was to appeal to Eve's pride. And I know none of us have any pride, so this doesn't matter to any of us. Whether or not it registered on Eve's subconscious level, there's our out. I'm subconsciously proud. <laughs> the serpent claimed the fruit would make Eve like God. Much like Satan would later tempt Jesus three times on the grounds of his deity. So uh, Eve had pride, and, and Satan tries to use the same thing on Jesus, but I know it won't work on me. As Eve began to investigate the fruit, she perceived that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise. So it was good for food, it would taste good, it looked good, and it had something that would make me wise. We find John later in his uh, epistle in 1 John, he classifies sin in these three ways. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, it looked good for food. The lust of the eyes, pleasant to the eyes. The pride of life, desirable to make one wise. It's, it, those things are not of the Father, but of this world. And so let me just say... <laughs> That's how Satan tempted Eve, the first woman. John says thousands of years later, this is how Satan will tempt you. I don't think his tactics have changed at all. <laughs> There's no nice way to say the phrase I'm going to say. I had a teacher uh, in college that the week before, I've probably said this before, and if you, if you remember, you know what's coming. He would give you the test the week before, all the questions. And so you had it for a whole week, and the next week, he would just hand you that exact same paper. And he'd say, I have no problem giving you this test, and here's why. There's no cure for stupid. <laughs> if you had all the questions and didn't take the time or effort, there's no cure for stupid. <laughs> if Satan tempted Eve like this all the way there, and then John says, it's exactly the same here. I would venture to say it's the same today. <laughs> there's no cure. No, sorry. It's not a secret. It's not a secret. He's going to tempt me in these ways. He's, it's going to be in my desires. He's going to appeal to my eyes. And he's going, to, he's going to appeal to my pride. So I need to make sure I'm guarding those areas. Eve should have valued her relationship so much with God that all of these false things would be no match for that communion with God. However, we know that it's easier to, to fall prey to all these when I don't have a consistent communion with God. When I'm not in daily conversation, when I don't have a regular conversation with God, suddenly these things are a whole lot easier to fall for. Instead, she cast in on the treasure for the allure of pride and pleasure. And really, if I could look back at all the dumb things I've done, really it falls in one of those three categories. And so if I know that and I can start to recognize it, suddenly that becomes a boundary. And I have a choice to make. When I'm confronted with those things and I know, mm, this, this is a little bit of pride I can feel here. Oh, this is going to make me feel real good. Mm, that looks good. Oh, this is what my flesh wants. For me to do that, I have to make a conscious choice now. I need to put those guards up in my life. With Adam and Eve's choice, sin entered the world and with it death. Dying is not only a secession of life as we know it, but it's separation. So spiritual death resulted. But the most exciting truth in God's big story is that he always, without fail, offers grace in exchange for sin. It's one of your blanks. God always, without fail, offers grace in exchange for sin. And so this story, as it continues to unfold, finds our hero, which is God in this story, not getting upset and destroying everything, but he walks in the cool of the garden one more time, and he's looking for his people. 
Now, God knows when he's walking and calling, Adam, where are you? He knows exactly where Adam is. He knows that they are hiding, that they are trying to hide themselves from his presence. But he asks the questions of them. He asks, where are you? And then when he discovers them, he begins to ask them what happened, even though he knows what has happened. It's not because he doesn't know their sin and what has taken place. But he wants to give his children the opportunity to confess to him and come to him in honesty. The man and the woman, though, they mess up the whole scene. He blames her and God. She blames the serpent. It's all a big mess. It's a whole lot easier to blame everyone else, right? And now we look at the story and we wonder what is going to happen. How is this story going to end? But the author and hero of the story, he breaks the rules and turns the tables. In this shocking reversal of events, he assigns the justice and destruction to the serpent. In Genesis 3, 14 and 15, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so as we watch this story unfold, we, we, we wonder what will take place because God has promised something. And yet we hear in this verdict, not the promise of death, not the promise of separation, but we hear in the verdict that he proclaims the verdict of hope and promise that there is something to grab a hold of, that there's not total destruction, that there is one coming someday who will conquer sin. And to the man and woman, he pronounces consequences. It's not the death thought would come, but there are consequences. And then it was not theirs, but there was death. We realize that it is not Adam and Eve, but God slays an animal and he becomes a substitute as they are clothed with its skin. And so, as the story comes to a close here, as the act comes to an end, we see the curtains come down, and yet, as they do, we turn back to our passage, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law... Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. That means it's not passed on when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from... Adam and Eve have changed the setting and the plot of the story. Man is banished from the garden. It's now no longer living forever in a perfect garden. No, it's changed. But in this moment, we hear a triumphant declaration that the serpent will be crushed. And we also not just witness that, but we see God's infinite mercy in that he comes down, and in their sin, and because of their choice, and in their shame, which always accompanies the choice, God clothes their shame. He does something to cover their shame. And when we see that happen, there is a promise that we can grab a hold of, of a coming Savior who's going to bring salvation to humanity once and for all. That his mercy, even in that moment, triumphed over everything. And let me just say to you this morning that choices that you have made in your life, they may have changed the setting of your life. They may have changed the plot of what your life could have been, but it does not disrail your story. No, there is still something that is to be written in your life. There is still an ending that God has, and His mercy is looking down on you today saying, yes, I know you have made choices. Yes, there are decisions and consequences that will affect your life, but there is still hope in His voice. There is still promise that we can grab from Him today that your story is not over. No, He can put it right back on track <laughs> I don't know how he can but I know he can <laughs> and we finish up 32 years 3 months and 14 days announced Alexander Leander Wilson as he stepped into the sunshine 
32 years, 3 months, and 14 days. It was the first moment in all of that time, over 32 years, that he had been able to step outside of the barbed wire confines of a California prison. It all began in 1984 when 21-year-old Wilson was arrested and put in jail on robbery and murder charges. Over the course of the legal proceedings, which have now been deemed unconstitutional, Wilson was convicted of crimes and sentenced to prison. For all of those 32 years in confinement, Wilson's mother, who was now 96, never gave up. She wrote countless lawyers and legal organizations to appeal for help. She hired private investigators in attempts to revisit the case and tried to incite media attention. Finally, in 2017, a group from Loyola Law School took on the case. They brought to light suppressed evidence and additional research to indicate Wilson did not get a fair trial and was wrongfully imprisoned. Through their efforts, a California Superior Court judge exonerated Wilson and ordered his release after prosecutors conceded he did not get a fair trial. Wilson greeted his freedom with joy, smiling at the many law students and reporters who gathered to witness his release. He stood side by side with his sister, daughter, and granddaughter, who he had never met, and shared his joy to be free, declaring he was going to go see his mother. Can you imagine how it felt for Wilson to walk out of his prison after being confined for over three decades? What emotions might you feel at the injustice of being wrongly imprisoned? And in our spiritual lives, we can face imprisonment as well. Perhaps we've been put in a prison of pain as a result of someone else's sin and how it affects us. Like Wilson, we may be unjustly suffering because of someone else's transgressions. Yet even if you have not experienced that injustice, all of us have to confront the prison our personal sin can bring. Without repentance, confession, and without redemption, we face spiritual imprisonment. And we know that Jesus is the only answer. And I'm thankful that he's not just the answer, but I can trust that he is more than than able to perform that task. Paul explained, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Yes, sin imprisons, but Jesus Christ is the promise that brings freedom. Like Wilson, I can experience the glorious freedom of deliverance from bondage, but even better, I can experience eternal freedom. And so I want to turn to him today for my deliverance. I want to make sure that it's in him that I put my faith and trust. And whatever choices that I have made in my life, whatever choices I have made that I sit here bound today because of that choice, let me tell you, his voice is still calling for you today. It's still calling, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know where you are, but he simply wants you to come to him today. God knows where you are. There's still hope for you in your situation today as we stand this morning. God is calling to each of us today. No matter what prison we may find ourselves in, and and we heard last week that we can be forgiven but not delivered. There's people that need deliverance. Even though they are forgiven, they need deliverance. That the prison doors are open. That He is calling if you simply walk out of those doors today. I want us to pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you thankful.